Welcome to the Palia Podcast. I'm Turi Munte. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts from across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. We're thrilled to be talking to Corey Clark. Corey is a social psychologist and visiting scholar in psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's interested particularly in political bias and the ways in which the groups that we belong to influence how we approach information. Corey, it's great to speak to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with tribalism. What is it? (laughs) (laughs) So tribalism is essentially the way um, the groups that we belong to shape how we approach information and the way we approach other people. So people are embedded in lots of different social groups. And once they're part of a group, they start to identify with that group. They want that group to be successful. And they also want to gain status within that group. And that leads people to uh, have a variety of psychological tendencies that affects how they evaluate information in other people. So they want to perceive their group members as better people than other kinds of group members. And they want to advance the interests of their in-group. So I I primarily look at this um, within politics So the reason people would have evolved to be tribal in the first place, the reason they would have this tendency to be loyal to their in-groups is because throughout human history, groups would get into conflict with other groups. They would compete for land and resources. Um, And then the groups that were the best at coordinating within their in-group are the ones that would survive um, and pass their genes on to later generations of humans. So the people who are alive today came from these other people who were really successful at working within their groups, really successful at cooperating with their in-groups. But now we kind of have this within politics and we're not necessarily fighting life and death a lot of the time, but we are fighting for status and resources, who's going to pay for what, who's going to receive what from other people, um, what rights should people have. And so you you still have these really highly consequential debates happening within the realm of politics. And because there's something to win or there's something to lose, being a member of a political tribe brings out a lot of these same psychological tendencies. It brings out these, these loyalties and these group commitments. And it causes us to see our political in-group members as better people than our political out-group members and to see our political in-group as being right about the world and our political out-group as being wrong about the world. And we, we engage in a variety of psychological tendencies that allow us to maintain that perception, to, to bolster our in-group and to make our in-group members like us more. So this talks to a lot of the things that we see all over the press particularly around this issue of polarization, the fact that we're Mm -hmm. supposed to be more polarized than we've been in a generation. Is that right? Uh, That we're more polarized now than we have been. So that does seem to be the case. There have been a lot of analyses of this. Um, Political groups seem to hate each other more than ever. Um, There is a lot of debate about what exactly has caused it. So some people would say that social media has something to do with it. but I'm, I'm not sure we really know that for sure. It could just be something that 
it, it really comes from the people. So what, what you seek out on social media, what you, what you thumbs up or retweet or whatever, however you engage with that information, that's the demand you're creating for that kind of content. And it causes the media to create more of that content. And it causes your friends and family members and other people, if they get a lot of likes on a really nasty political tweet where they, they completely slam the other side, that's a signal to them to do that more. Um, so social media might be sort of like a tool that helps facilitate this polarization, but it's really coming from people. Um, and I think that's because this is just sort of a natural tendency we have, and it's something we, we kind of crave. Um, we want to be able to show our in-group that we're really, you know, fiercely loyal members and we're going to advance the interests of the in-group. Um, that, in that in-group, out-group sort of dialectic, I, I've always, there are a couple of sort of potential causes for this rise in polarization that I like um, yeah. because they talk directly to them. So one, um, the, the end of the Cold War. As soon as the Cold War goes, we lose this big terrifying enemy that we can unify mm -hmm. against. Um, and, a, and, a, and an extension of that is this, the wonderful re research by uh, Karen Stenner, who's worked on authoritarianism. Um, and she, she's demonstrated that one way in which to help people expand their in-group is to give them a really frightening external mm -hmm. enemy, like aliens. So her, right. <laughs> her approach to dealing with this problem of polarization and tribalism is just go, go invent a much more frightening other tribe like aliens so right. that um so that everybody else can unify around their hatred of them rather than our hatred of each other yes that would be like a non-ideal solution to the polarization <laughs> problem we are under attack by aliens or even like within countries being under attacked by another country could potentially unify people but that's of course not the way you'd want to do it um but yeah i think it, it is complicated because there's no easy way um, to sort of solve the polarization problem, because this is just kind of, is, so long as you have political competition, you've got groups competing for, for leadership, um, I, I think it's kind of inevitable to have this sort of thing. Now, of course, it's, it seems to be getting worse, so that suggests it used to be better. Um, one argument could be just that things are, there aren't that many well, I was going to say there aren't these like huge threats to humanity, but this is a bad time to make that argument while we've got, we're undergoing a pandemic <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, and all got... sorts of other problems. <laughs> but, um, you know, life is pretty comfortable right now for the most part, even though maybe we're not getting to go out and have fun. We're not, humankind isn't struggling to survive as a whole. Um, so, I mean, there, there could be a lot of reasons why polarization seems to be getting worse, but. Okay, no, I, that, that, I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've got, um, you've nicely described tribalism for us and the reasons for tribalism and the reasons for that tribal extension into political thinking. It also has an impact in the way that we think. So help us understand tribal thinking. So I tried to break tribal thinking into two categories that aren't completely separate, but I think you can still distinguish them. So one is in-group favoritism, and this is how we approach people. So we like members of our in-group better than members of our out-group. And what that means is that we're more charitable, we're more forgiving. If um, a politician that you really like does something, say they, they have a marital affair, if it's somebody you like, you might 
say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It has nothing to do with their, their leadership ability. Uh, sure, it's not great, but you know, we shouldn't judge him too harshly. Whereas if it's a political outgroup member, a politician you, you dislike, you might say, this reflects his total lack of moral character. Like, we cannot trust this person. He's completely corrupt. His morals, he's just not a, a good person. Um, so it's not just that we like in-group members better than out-group members, but it's that we hold them to different standards and we're more generous and forgiving and accepting of the flaws of people we like, people who are in our in-group and more judgmental and harsh and critical right. of people in the out-group, even if we're talking about the exact same thing, the exact same behavior, um, we're going to be more generous toward our in-group members. Bill the Clinton's other... affair versus exactly. Donald, Donald Trump's multiple... Exactly. The hard thing with real world examples is you can always point to small ways that they differ. Um, but we do this in the laboratory. So you, you run experiments where you look right. at, you literally manipulate, you have the exact same immoral action and you say, a Democrat did this or a Republican did this. How bad is it? And people will say it's more bad if it's, um, if it's a, a member of your political outgroup. Right. So we know people have this tendency. Um, the thing that I'm more interested in, because I think it's more problematic really for coming to a shared understanding of the world and of human nature, um, I call ideological epistemology, but what it really is, is the way we approach and evaluate information. So people are more likely to seek out information that's going to support their group's beliefs and avoid information that might challenge their group's beliefs. And once they actually are confronted with information or they're actually exposed to information, if it's something that supports their group's belief, they're pretty uncritical. They accept it quickly. They don't look for flaws. And they're like, of course, that's totally, that's in line with everything I already thought. This must be true. Whereas if it's a piece of information that might challenge your group's beliefs, you spend more time looking, trying to find the flaw, why might they be wrong, um, and are more critical. So people are, are really credulous toward information if it confirms what their group believes and highly skeptical if they confront information that opposes what their group believes. Um, and what this creates is just a, a, a tendency for the way people interact with information just constantly reinforces they're in group and then people become more certain over time that they're right um, and that their outgroup members are wrong. And how could they be so wrong? It must be that they're bad people <laughs> because look, all of the information supports our side. Um, so we, on the, on the Palio podcast, we've spoken quite a lot about um, motivated reasoning and mm. how that, what, wh what, wh where that comes from, what impacts it has on our capacity to, think rationally whether motivated reasoning itself is a rational approach mm. especially in the light of ambiguous evidence mm. um and so maybe maybe let's jump into this because i think that ambiguity is something that you focus on in this question of ideological epistemology it's mm -hmm. particularly in moments where there is ambiguous evidence where the motivated reasoning really comes rushing to the fore, where our tribal thinking goes into overdrive. That's right, no? Yes. So people, so it seems that people are more politically biased or more tribal when they're confronted with ambiguous information. And the reason we think this is, is because people, granted, people have a lot of sort of ludicrous beliefs, but people don't want to be blatantly tribal. They don't want to lose credibility as people 
who are sort of generally concerned for the truth. So if you're confronted with a mountain of evidence that challenges your beliefs, it's really hard to resist that mountain of evidence because people will be like, how could you ignore this mountain of evidence? It's so obvious. Right. Um, but in more ambiguous cases, when it's actually really hard to know the truth, people can't call you out for being tribal or being politically biased because nobody knows what the truth is. So you can get away with it more easily. Um, one that I think is a good example is people debate um, the gender pay gap. Okay, how big is it? What are all the reasons for it? Is some kind of discrimination uh, accounting for some of that gap? Or is it all due to other kinds of differences that are like natural differences between men and women? I don't think anybody really fully knows all of the causes of the gender pay gap. And in some cases, we don't even really know how large it is if you're trying to compare identical jobs um, and identical work that's really hard to do because the world's a messy place the world doesn't occur in a carefully controlled laboratory experiment where you can say um, you know the man and the woman are doing the exact same amount of work and producing the exact same amount of whatever it is they're trying to produce so this allows both sides to interpret information in a way that's going to reinforce their side. So maybe liberals want to say, no, it's 100% due to discrimination. And conservatives want to say, no, it's 100% due to natural differences between groups. Um, and both sides can advance some information that's going to support their particular perspective. And neither side's going to be 100% right um, so, or 100% wrong. So when you have these cases where the information is hard to know the truth, that gives you a lot of wiggle room and it gives you a lot of ability to pick and choose what, what data you're going to forward, explain away other data, because there isn't going to be some answer out in the world that's going to be impossible to deny, at least at the present moment. Um, that's one element of the, of the value of ambiguity, if you want, so far as it allows for Yes. A proper, a, a kind of a, a, at least a, on the surface, plausibly rational debate. About. Exactly. But exactly. the other key point about ambiguity is that um, it, it, it occurs in the context of, when it occurs in the context of these sort of tribal conflicts that you describe, mm -hmm. it actually increases the virulence, doesn't it? it? It sort of allows for, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems mm -hmm. like when there's ambiguous, lots of ambiguous evidence out there, it provides people with the opportunity to show more loyalty to their tribe mm. because in fact it's not a loyalty based on reason it's a loyalty based on feeling can you help can you can you express that thought <laughs> in, a, yeah, in a way so, which actually makes sense please no that's interesting so in the case i think what you're saying is that when something isn't so clear um, when we don't know with 100% certainty whether the group's position is correct, being a strong defender of that position would signal more loyalty to your group because you're willing to be certain even in the face of uncertainty. So it's kind of a stronger signal of commitment to the group um, when there's ambiguity. But one thing, this is a potential counter argument to what I'm saying, um, although I think the reality is they're probably both true. Another thing is that when information is ambiguous, when I cannot know for sure what the actual truth is, then deferring to my group is a perhaps rational heuristic. So I say, on average, my group tends to be more right than the out group. 
Um, that's why I'm part of this group to begin with. So let's say I'm a Democrat. Democrats tend to be more right. Therefore, on this issue, when I can't tell what is true, I'll just believe what the Democrats believe because they tend to be right more often. So that would be a kind of rational explanation that you might say isn't necessarily motivated reasoning. It's sort of a rational um, heuristic that is applied in cases when it's impossible to know the truth. And although I think that's not the whole story, um, that I suspect is at least part of it and part of the reason why you see more sort of tribalistic thinking in cases of ambiguous information. Because you can do two things here. One, it's useful to you. It helps you accelerate your thinking. We all outsource our thinking in many, many yes. ways, most of the time anyway. But two, it gives you an opportunity to demonstrate loyalty, um, yes. which is interesting. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, now, on to the differences between liberals and conservatives. On a previous podcast, we spoke to Adrian Barden, who's a professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University and has spoken and has written a great deal recently about denialism science denialism, particularly on the conservative side. There are some systemic reasons why conservatives would be more averse to theoretical science and, and also things like climate change than, than um, progressives. But so we have science denialism aimed at conservatives. Conservatives are statistically less educated than liberals, both in the UK and the US. Um, and they're also explicitly far more committed to in-group loyalty than, say, liberals or progressives. So all of these things suggest to liberals that conservatives would be way more prone to bias, to not questioning their ways of seeing the world, to not being able even to project what the other side might be thinking. And yet your work um, suggests that that's not true, that liberals are just as good at biased thinking and motivated reasoning. Um, as conservatives. Is that right? So I agree with some of what you say, not quite all of it. And I'll um, maybe even soften a little bit of the claim that you're saying that I'm making. Um, so it is true that liberals on average are more educated. Um, I think it is probably true. No, I, I think oh, plenty of work would support this, that liberals are sort of more friendly to science. They're more trusting of science um, in general. Now, I think there are probably good reasons for that. One would be that scientists also tend to be liberal, but it's what came first, the chicken or the egg in that case. Like, was it that because liberals are more pro-science, they become scientists? Or is it that scientists are liberal, so liberals are more friendly toward it? It's probably both. Um, I think it's probably both. Uh, the thing that I'm not 100% sure about is I'm not really sure whether there are differences in loyalty and group loyalty. Now, I know some scholars say that conservatives are more pro in group loyalty. Um, on some measures, that seems to be true. In the actual behavior, I don't know that that's true. Um, gotcha. And that's Sorry, kind of I, sh I should work. precise a little bit. Yes, exactly, because <laughs> it's sort of at the very edge. What I was suggesting was that you tend to find a conservative response to uh, migration, for example, a conservative response to other religions tends to be stronger mm -hmm. and less inclusive or less open to the idea of inclusion than the progressive or liberal one. That's all I meant. Yes, yes. Um, and also there are other things. So like conservatives tend to be more religious and that creates a lot of issues. So they're maybe more willing to deny evolution. And that's one of the most important 
theories in terms of understanding human behavior. If you deny evolution, you deny a lot of science. Um, and I don't even know how you come to understand human behavior at that point. So, so I do think liberals and conservatives are different in a variety of ways. Um, the, the work you're referring to is a meta-analysis I conducted with some of my former lab mates at University of California, Irvine. Um, we pulled together every single study we could find, every single experiment we could find that tried to measure political bias. So these are cases where you're giving participants identical pieces of information and you're manipulating something about it. So maybe they're, they're evaluating a policy. They say, here's policy X. And then they say, Democrats support policy X, or they say, Republicans support policy X. How good is this policy? And they find that participants who are Democrats say it's a better policy if a Democrat supports it, and Republicans say it's better if Republicans support it. They do this with scientific findings. So the, the classic example is this Lord Ross Leper study from 1979. They have people read about a scientific study that says the death penalty either deters crime or it increases crime. So it basically says the death penalty is either effective or it's counterproductive. And they find, and then they ask people, how good are the methods of the study? So they're not evaluating the conclusions. They're evaluating the way they conducted the study itself before they found the conclusions. Um, and people will say the methods are better when the results support their, their previous um, position on the death penalty. Um, so I think we had 51 of these studies. We, you put them all together and you look at the average effect size, how biased are Democrats, how biased are Republicans. We also included conservatives and liberals in different ways you can um, define those groups. And what we found was that liberals and conservatives were virtually equally likely to engage in this kind of political bias. They're equally likely to evaluate information more favorably when it supports their group than when it challenges their group. Um, so this suggests that in their, I would call these kinds of behavior because you're evaluating information, in this particular tendency, liberals and conservatives seem equally politically biased. They seem equally likely to allow their group commitments to shape how they evaluate information. So this was Which puzzling. doesn't sound terribly surprising, right? Because it would be, it would be surprising that we would have evolved differently as political tribes. Right. So it was, so it's not surprising to me for one reason, and that's that humans are humans and they do human things. <laughs> so it's like liberals and conservatives are both humans. They evolved in similar contexts. They're not different. They're not like fundamentally different groups of people. Um, so it's not surprising that they're similar. It was surprising to a lot of scholars. And in fact, a lot of scholars still reject the results and they think there are problems um, with how we did the meta-analysis or just the studies themselves that were included in the meta-analysis. Um, because so much of the social sciences focus on everything that's wrong with conservatives and all of the reasons you would expect them to be worse in this way. Um, I think, I mean, one thing I've tried to reflect on is if in modern society are most, so in the US we have the Democrats and Republicans, both very successful political coalitions that have existed for a long time. They go back and forth and who's winning at a given moment in terms of like who's the president, who's controlling the Senate. Um, 
if one group of people, liberals or Democrats, were much less tribal, that is, they don't necessarily defer to their group every time. They're willing to not vote for their candidate when they don't like the candidate that's up that year. They aren't, they don't vote party line. If one group was more willing to do that, you would expect the other group to eventually demolish. <laughs> if one group was so right. much more loyal, all of their members were voting 100% Republican on every issue, every time, every time there's a Republican candidate, if their members were willing to do that and the other members weren't willing to do that, they would win, the Republicans would win every time. Now, that's not necessarily true. That's more just me thinking out loud about this. Um, right. No, no, but it, that also makes sense. That, so yes, there's a, there's, there is a strong evolutionary suggestion that um, humans are humans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay, so, so this is a super interesting finding, probably also particularly for our listeners who I imagine are predominantly liberal. Um, mm. It's good to be reminded that we make the same mistakes. Um, just yes. as well as the other side. Um, Corey, one of the determinant features of bias is, of course, that you don't know you've got it or <laughs> you don't know that you're performing it. Um, and that talks to sort of a, a fundamental quality of these sacred values that you talk about, which are these deeply held beliefs that both liberals and conservatives have and are perhaps not capable even of verbalizing, not mm -hmm. certainly not capable of seeing. Um, so can I ask you, just because, again, most of our, our, our listeners will be on the liberal side of the spectrum, mm -hmm. can I ask you to help us identify what those hidden biases are on the liberal side? Yes. So the, the term that my um, colleague and I, my co-author on a lot of this work, Bo Weingard, we call it equalitarianism. Um, and we think it stems from sort of like a good place among liberals. We think it stems from... Um, Can I just ask you to say it again? So equalitarianism not egalitarianism Equal yes we call it equalitarianism um but we think it stems from egalitarianism in part um and what what i mean by that is that liberals have greater desire for groups to be treated equally to have equal outcomes they are more opposed to hierarchies and conservatives conservatives are more comfortable with hierarchies that some people are going to have more than other people, for example. Um, and they particularly have a lot of empathy for people who are on the lower end of the hierarchy, so lower status groups of people. So these are things that liberals, I think, explicitly identify with. They identify as egalitarian, they identify as having empathy for relatively low status groups. But we think that in their desire for groups to be equal, they have a bias toward perceiving groups to be equal. So they want to see groups that are higher status and lower status to be more equal in some sort of fundamental way. Um, and so we perceive liberals as having a bias toward explaining all group differences through 
discrimination, um, prejudice, and these kinds of things, that it's the powerful people holding the low power people down, and they oppose other kinds of explanations. So because we've already talked about the gender pay gap, liberals would want to think that the only reason women earn less than men on average is because they're being discriminated against because of sexism and not because men and women actually are different in ways that would cause that maybe women don't want to work as much maybe they have different interests maybe they have slightly different talents um so, so liberals are opposed to scientific findings that would suggest um that men and women are actually different so cory to restate the motivated reasoning here if i understand correctly is that liberals desire the world to be equal and therefore imagine the world to be equal as a starting point for all their work so any findings which suggest that the world is not equal they will discount because they want it to be so and that's what the motivated reasoning is well by discount i mean that they will explain that inequality by appealing to some kind of discrimination explanation rather than that there is some underlying difference whether it be due to um genetics or some sort of evolved difference between groups um so anytime you observe so there are lots of inequalities in the world lots of groups aren't exactly the same on a lot of different things um and on their performance in a lot of different domains so when liberals are confronted with inequality they don't want it to be the case that those those differences reflect some underlying difference within the groups themselves and rather some kind of structural difference that society is imposing on those groups does that make sense yeah so um liberals obsession with systemic inequality is um in as it's sort of at the very heart of the liberal project if yes. equalitarianism is what that's the fundamental sacred value or the liberal metaphysics are Yes, and I should add that there is another piece to this, and it's because um, liberals have particular concern for the well-being of relatively low-status um, groups in whatever domain they're looking at. So, or, sorry, so because they have a, a particular concern with the low-status groups, they want to see the world in a way that those groups are either equal to or better than the high-status groups. So one finding among social scientists which i find to be pretty interesting was um, a study performed by bill von hippel and david buss they inter or emailed a survey to a bunch of social psychology professors um, and asked them how much they think differences could be whether there could be evolved differences that explain certain group discrepancies and one was men appear to be somewhat more mathematically talented than women how much could that be an evolved difference and women appear to be somewhat more verbally talented than men. How much could that be an evolved difference? And they were more willing to say that women could have evolved to be more verbally talented than men, than that men could have evolved to be more mathematically talented than women. Um, I don't know of any good reason why you would expect one to be more likely than the other. And the fact that they were more comfortable with that um, with the possibility that women evolved this superior quality, but not that men evolved a superior quality, I think reflects 
liberals aversion to the possibility that there could be some real difference between men and women in which men would be better than women on something. In this case, it would be math. So that's the logical flaw, which is to say that um, they're perfectly happy to entertain the fact that there may be differences between the genders, but not if that, uh, that difference between the genders explains current inequality. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think or perhaps reinforces current inequality, perhaps. Yes, I think that's one way of saying it. So uh, another set of studies that I ran, we looked at this with gender and IQ. And these weren't with academics, these were with normal people, but we had um, people evaluate a scientific study that said that there was some genetic explanation for why women have higher IQs than men or why men have higher IQs than women. And then we also had an equal condition where we said, this gene explains why men and women have equal IQ. And we found, in fact, among liberals and conservatives, although there was more consistency among liberals, where they found this scientific study to be roughly equally compelling if it said men and women are equal or women have higher IQ than men, but they found the study particularly uncompelling when it said that men have higher IQ than women. So they have this sort of aversion to the possibility that there could be a real difference between men and women, in this case, a genetic um, explanation for why men might have a more desirable quality. So that sort of motivated reasoning performed. I wonder whether an extension question here would be, are your respondents, could your respondents be aware of the politics of those questions to start with? And that, in other words, what I'm asking is, could it be deliberately motivated reasoning, not just mm. knee-jerk motivated reasoning? Could they, could, is it possible for somebody to say, um, I understand what's happening here, but I don't want to accept the results as they are because those results are politically dangerous. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think there is probably some of that going on. So I've, I've talked about those findings. We did a similar one too, where we had people read about men or women evolved to be better leaders and liberals wanted to censor the, the argument that men evolved to be better leaders more than women evolved to be better leaders. Um, I presented these findings, similar findings to this, finding that, you know, liberals are essentially um, biased against the possibility that the high status groups have some more desirable quality than the low status groups. And some people will want to deny that it exists altogether. Um, but what is a more common response, and this is related to what you brought up, is they'll say, well, it's not a bias. It's um, a couple things. It could be they're skeptical of the findings because powerful people are the ones forwarding findings. And whenever powerful people say powerful people have a better quality, we should be skeptical. So this is actually a rational thing. Anytime the high status group is better, we should be skeptical of that information because the high status people control the information. So that's one argument and that's, that's compelling, I think. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is that, okay, maybe it, it is a sort of bias, but it's a bias it's an intentional bias aimed at correcting current inequalities. So it would be worse. And some people would explicitly even say this. And in fact, there was a scholar, I don't know how to pronounce his first name. It's U-W-E, last name Peters. He's a philosopher. He said liberals and professors, liberal professors have this egalitarian bias, but it's a good thing and we should encourage it. And we 
even if it pushes us further from the truth and we're unwilling to accept certain empirical realities that are in fact empirical realities, it's better for the world to have this bias. And so we should support or encourage the existence of it. Um, How prevalent is that view? It's sort of interesting because of course, the res- it's a tough hill to die on right yeah. now, certainly in our, in, in, our, in our sort of political climate, certainly in academia, to want to be defending what to liberals looks like oppression because it, from a liberal perspective, often the hill that conservatives would like to die on feels like a racist one or a Mm. sort of gender essentializing one. And that's Mm. tough. Yeah. So do you mean among liberal scholars defending the bias or do you mean defending the bias? Yes. Yeah. So I, I don't actually have a good, I don't, I don't know for sure how many people would defend the bias. I would suspect it'd be less than half of scholars because I still believe that most scholars think what we're trying to do is pursue true and accurate information and a better understanding of the world as it really is. Um, I don't think that everyone supports, in fact, I have some, I have some data on this back when I didn't have that many Twitter followers and most of my Twitter followers were just other academics. I did a poll um, on whether we should be pursuing the truth, making the world a better place or if people refused to answer, I think maybe it was an option. And most people said we're pursuing the truth. But I do think a lot of people think that scholars should be making the world a better place, or perhaps they think we should only pursue the truth in cases where it would make the world a better place, and definitely not pursue truth when it would make the world a worse place. I don't think there's a definitely correct philosophy behind what academics are doing. I'm in the pursue truth camp, I suppose. Um, but part of that is because I think that pursuing truth generally does make the world a better place. If, if we know what causes group disparities and we care about minimizing group disparities, you'd want to start with the best information on the causes of those, I think. Um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a joke, but, but, it's also, but it's also a true story. My Jewish grandfather used to say, um, in relation to precisely this question, he didn't like anti-Semites, but he didn't like philo-Semites either. He wanted people to be asemitic. Mm. <laughs> um, and um, that feels sort of like the pursue the truth rather than advance one or other side of the question. Yes. And I think there, when we have this sort of, what you do see is a little bit of a reversal of how people are willing to treat information. So if people were not treating people based on their gender or based on their race or whatever group membership category, and they were completely neutral, I think that would be causing less problems than what seems to be happening now, which is a bit of a reversal among liberals. So there have been a bunch of findings recently that find that the typical findings we used to see like 20, 30, 40 years ago, where people seem to be biased against women or biased against black people or biased against whatever minority group, that was sort of the general tendency. A lot of people are finding now in these similar kinds of studies where they manipulate the race or the gender of someone, especially among liberals, you get the flip finding where they're actually biased in favor of black people or biased in favor of women. And even though that might be sort of, let's say, I don't know, virtuous and that you're trying to Rebalance, get, get rid of inequality. Yeah. yeah, rebalancing, get rid of inequalities. I'm not sure it's necessarily a sustainable strategy because 
people pick up on that. And you, I think you already see quite a bit of this pushback against a lot of white people now feel like they're the victims in this country or men, they're like men's interest groups popping up all over the place. And you don't necessarily want men's interest groups popping up all over the place, but part of their concerns might be, might be legitimate. And in fact, they are being evaluated in sort of unfair and negative ways relative so actually, to women in a lot of domains. Reading your paper, it's the very first time that I was able to understand the idea of ALM, all lives matter, not mm. exclusively as a self-consciously racist movement, which is I as a liberal, of course, would see it as, but understand it as a reaction against a perhaps legitimate or at least understandable reaction against the the bias of the other side. Yeah, it could come from a little bit of fear that if we're not being inclusive of all lives in that sort of statement, then white people become the bottom of the hierarchy. And I'm not sure there's a risk of that sort of thing happening in any like big, important, meaningful way, but it is at least understandable that people might have that fear. Um, and I think the the vision that so many people had was that we would stop evaluating people on the basis of their skin tone or on their gender or whatever sort of group category they fall into. Um, and I think people are seeing a new tolerance for taking into consideration race, taking into consideration gender um, in determining how we should treat people. And it's sort of a different it's a different philosophy than what I think a lot of people expected when right. we were making so much progress on these issues. Right. Yeah. It's a, yes, I understand that. Okay. So we have um, clearly established sort of metaphysics on either side, sacred value clusters on left and right conservative liberal. Why evolutionarily? Why do we have these two groups? Do you see this? Do you see the existence of these two very, very different sets of ideas in an evolutionary context? Do you think of it as a purely cultural phenomenon? But what's the value of having these groups like this? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't think I have a very good answer for you. So there are some people who think liberals and conservatives are differ or are different in sort of like big fundament, fundamental ways. There's some evidence that political ideology is a little bit heritable. And I think as we've mentioned earlier, there are differences between these groups. I would agree they probably are different. And there are people who make arguments. I think even my one of my postdoc advisors, Roy Baumeister, he argues about how you want people really focused on generating wealth and other people focused on redistributing wealth and these two actually balance each other out. And so if you look at a lot of conservative positions and liberal positions and the way they differ, one's really pushing to change things and one's really pushing to preserve things or whatever it is, they actually balance out in a nice way in a society. So you want all kinds of people. You don't want everyone to be pushing for a change all the time because that creates all kinds of instability. Plus, we don't know what's going to happen when you create change. But the world, the universe, well, not the universe, let's say the world, human, human, uh, the human condition seems to improve with time. Um, so change is generally a good thing. Um, so you could say that the reason we have these groups is because they, when they're in competition with each other and each is having some victories, 
they're slowing each other down from realizing their the strongest vision of what they're trying to do um that's what's best for society i don't really know and i i'm sort of i think liberals and conservatives are different i don't think they're different in huge ways and i think what happens is people might lean a little bit one way or the other. They might have a little bit more of a liberal type personality or a little bit more of a conservative type personality. And then once you identify with a group, I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative, you surround yourself with other liberals or other conservatives, they reinforce your behavior, you become more liberal or more conservative and you that's how you kind of get these divisions where people sort of split off and can be categorized into two things when humans exist on a spectrum. They, I would think they must exist on a spectrum. Um, but even if they exist on a spectrum, the fact that that spectrum exists is sort of interesting. And again, I'm asking yeah. it from an evolutionary perspective, but is there, are there other ways of understanding? Cause it's an, it's a, I would love to believe this. I, it would be, it would do wonderful things to reinforce my, deep deeply deeply held belief in democracy if actually we could say society as we have it today is optimized to have a spread of political opinions in them precisely because th those, those two opposite approaches to life calm the sort of fury on either side and advance society in a way which is best for society mm -hmm. but is that what, what would an alternative explanation be um an alternative explanation would be randomness. <laughs> um, I really don't know. Uh, and I, I, I think a lot of people would make the argument that you're making, but I'm not 100% sure it's right. It does make sense. Um, and you seem Help to get the sort of liberal conservative-ish thing that can be at least somewhat compared across different countries and different political systems. They're not identical, but there is some kind of cultural similarity there which would seem to suggest there might be a reason you have that kind of spectrum but you're nervous but yeah. of that so tell me why you're nervous of that no i'm not i'm not nervous of it i i just don't know is all um if someone's making another argument then i'm not aware of it so and i just wouldn't have a lot of confidence it's it's one of those things that it's Academics. just really hard to know <laughs> You're, ter you're terrible in, in, in the way that you sort of require or seem to pretend to require evidence before forming judgments. <laughs> you know, Non-academics like me have so much easier time. I try to be, research shows that intellectual humility is good in a variety of ways. So I try to exercise it when possible. <laughs> I'll take that as a personal attack. Um, Corey, this has been a thrilling conversation. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating. Thanks for having me. It was very fun. That was the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's themes and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to the Palia podcast wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And thank you for listening.